Um, and good day. Welcome to the Stays Quo Conversations. And I am joined by another author, uh, Naledi. And this is my first time chatting to a fiction writer. So, first time ever, 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 ever. Um, I tend to chat to mostly biographies, um, lessons learned, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can you introduce yourself, Naledi? Uh, hi, I'm Naledi Mashishi. I'm the author of Invisible Strings. I'm based in Joburg and I'm a researcher and this is my first novel. Mm, novel. Uh, you're a researcher. When I was actually reading up on you, I was actually surprised that you're an actual researcher. Did the idea of writing a book ever come in the picture earlier on in your life? Yeah, so I I've actually always wanted to write a book. Like I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be an author because I started re reading pretty young and I really got into books. So like I read, I was like constantly reading a book. Like even now my relatives say that like they're used to seeing me always holding a book. So I knew I wanted to write one. Um, so the researcher part came much later. I actually thought I would be a journalist because um, some of my favorite writers started out as journalists and they mentioned how much um, working in, in journalism ended up helping their writing. So I thought that that would be the path for me, but with the journalism being the way it is now, um, I ended up going into fact-checking and researching, which is actually, it's, it's been quite interesting. I mean, I enjoy what I do, but yeah, um, writing a book has always been the goal for me. Mm. I love how you start. So, what is the state of journalism? What scared you about the state of journalism currently? You know, just there's, there's been a lot of um, retrenchments, a lot of newsrooms that um, are reducing the number of staff. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, we had all these magazines. We had Elle magazine and we had, um, I, I think we had Cosmo and even like even teen magazine, even like 17 magazine. So I always thought I would go into magazine writing, but the magazine industry in this country has really just collapsed. And um, newsrooms that used to have like journalists that would work on like politics or sports and that's all they would do have now reduced their um, staff sizes to the point where like everyone has to do everything. So it's just a very precarious space right now. So um, luckily I managed to find a job with Africa Check that allows me to kind of focus on one thing and that's fact-checking journalism, which I enjoy quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Africa Check. They, they actually help a lot, dispel a lot of myths, inaccuracies, and a lot of, um, a lot of um, mistruths, just mistruths. I think that's where I think we all are in terms of mistruths. Um, what do you think, um, if you look at journalism now, and even your current role, even with fact-checking, do you see the situation getting any better or worse? Um, it's a bit hard to say because, you know, on the one hand, like um, journalism plays an extremely important role in society. But on the other hand, um, newsrooms, are, a big part of the reason why newsrooms have been suffering is because of the internet. You know, people don't really buy physical newspapers anymore so everyone wants um news but they don't want to pay for it and that's 
obviously affecting newsrooms' overhead costs. Um, and, you know, the problem that we found in the, in the fact-checking field is that a lot of newsrooms have started instituting paywalls in order to, you know, try and pay bills. But what that means is that um, the truth is hidden behind a paywall, whereas um, misinformation is is free. So it's it's that it's that balance. So um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that journalism will make some kind of recovery, but right now things aren't looking too great. I I think yeah, we can all agree on that part. I think uh, the recovery part I personally don't see happening at all. Like, I don't see it happening at all. It sounds evil when you say it out loud that way, but I just don't. Um, when I look at the business model and where it's heading towards and how um, the rush for profitability has compromised, I think, a lot of the quality. And yeah. Has, and has, it has, it, ha- it has, I always say per, perverted incentives that's the word I'm looking for has perverted incentives in terms of um what sort of the the thinking in terms of where the institute is actually the profession is going towards but yeah Yeah. before we get distracted because I get distracted very easily um (laughs) let's get into the point of the conversation your book your book your book your book your book can I just ask um what made you go to Blackbird I'm just curious. So I, I um really liked what Blackbird's what Blackbird's goal is, right? Because Blackbird is all about publishing black authors, and the problem with the South African literary scene um, is that it's it's very white dominated. Um, particularly when Blackbird first emerged like five years ago, like, and I even have friends who work in other. I'm not going to mention names, but for some other publishers who say that. You know, it's it's they're very reluctant. They're often very reluctant to publish black authors um, unless you're like a big name, like a Tabo Mbeki type person. So Blackbird kind of came to try and right that wrong. And I, I was really into that um, mission statement, especially since um, I wanted to write speculative fiction. And there are very few publishing houses that are willing to do that, um, particularly like black speculative fiction, because there's still this this belief in the publishing industry that black people don't really read, which isn't true. So um, I liked the fact that Blackbird was focused on developing black voices and you need to be some big name in whatever industry for them to consider you. You know, they, they focused on talent. But um, more specifically, Blackbird hosted a writer's residency um, towards the end of 2019 um, called the Casa Lord um, Residency. And so I applied for that and I got in and it basically allowed me three weeks to um, to start the first draft of my book. And after that, I finished the first draft and I was, you know, in conversation a lot with um, Tabiso Masape, who's the head of the founder of Blackbird. And that's basically how I ended up getting getting published by them. Oh, that's actually quite interesting. That's actually quite interesting. The reason why I ask is because you're also the first author that I've interviewed that actually is from a black publishing house. I'm not sure if that is a, a good or bad thing if we think about the, the idea that the country is, um, it's majority of the people are black. For those people who don't know, please can you define speculative, speculative um, 
um, writing, just so for those people who are not aware of what it actually is? So speculative fiction is basically um, like a broad umbrella term for um, for fiction like fantasy and, and science fiction. So it's, you know, fiction that kind of uses either magical elements in it or that it's based like 200 years in the future or, or whatever. Um, and then there are, and then there are like sub genres within speculative fiction. So for example, you get like high fantasy, which would be like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. And you get like urban fantasy, which would be, you know, Twilight. So there's different like subgenres, but but any sort of uh, fiction that isn't based in a, in like the 100% sort of real real world um, is would be speculative fiction. Hmm. Okay. No, no, no. I was actually quite surprised because cons- the reason why I said I'm surprised by the reluctance to publish it is that if you look at uh, broadcast media. There's a lot of magic things going on there. So <laughs> I think it's it's actually quite surprising. But, and this book does definitely cover this genre. It was surprising to me. So um, I saw your book because I follow you on Twitter and I didn't even know what it was about until I actually got it. I had no idea what it was about. I had no idea. I just said, it's a fiction book. I'm tired of reading about serious things. Uh, I want to read something that is um, a lot lighter hearted. So let's talk about Mamochet. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Mm-hmm. Yes. Am I pronouncing yes. it? Yes. Mamochet. Besides the fiction part, what made you to, to add the different realities of circumstance in South Africa, the absent fathers, divorce? early pregnancies, et cetera, et cetera. What sort of inspired that, even though it's set within a fictional situation, scenario, and it has a little bit of elements of magic, what made you decide to add in those specific elements? So um, I've, okay, so so two things. So firstly, when it came to like this particular book, I was more inspired by, again, a subgenre of speculative fiction called magical realism, which is basically where um, books that take place in a real world, but in that world, there are magical elements and those magical elements are like treated as a normal part of that of that world. So I wanted the book to feel real and I wanted to deal with like real um, serious issues that people go through every day in this country. But I also wanted to... Um, explore those issues through a, a bit more of a fantastical lens. Um, so, you know, with someone like Mamukheti, she is not a character that people tend to like, but she's, but like her reality is one that a lot of women are going through in this country. You know, there are a lot of women who end up with unplanned pregnancies, who can't um, obtain an abortion. And I think one thing that, we don't often talk about is uh, there's this kind of like expectation that the moment you give birth, it's going to be sunshine and rainbows and it's going to be like the best ex- and being a mom is going to be the best thing ever. Right. And for a lot of women, that is true, but for some women, it's not. So I actually came across a Facebook page called um, I regret having children where people anonymously post about how, how um, if they could go back and do it differently, they would and how much they don't like being parents. So I thought that would be, an interesting um, dynamic to explore uh, through this character. 
Hmm. I loved how you add the mommy issues, just slid in the mommy issues, black women and their relationships with their mothers. I, I also, and, uh, the mommy issues aspect, because I think with I, one of the things I enjoyed about Mamochetu's story was initially you don't do feel some empathy for her, but I think I liked how you rounded out the initial stories of she didn't enjoy her pregnancy. It was a horrible experience and the envy of her having to deal with watching her mother love her child. Mm-hmm. Like that, that relationship dynamic I thought was actually quite interesting to actually explore black women and the relationships they have with their mothers. The complexity of that was also quite, quite keen to explore. So when you were writing all of this, I like that you set it up in the lens. Did you reflect a lot from your own life or your own life experiences? So um, there is some, there are some parts of it that are based on my own life, but a lot of it is also based on like stuff I've read and stuff I've been thinking about. So for example, um, there's a church, uh, the church that Solomon attends as a child. is actually a real church in Johannesburg CBD. So yeah, um, I know the church. I, used- <laughs> I, I recognize the church, the description. <laughs> yeah. So I, I used to attend that church when I was growing up, so I decided to add it there. Um, they even so there's certain places in the book, like for example, I'm I'm a big fan of Melville. Like I spent so much time in Melville, so so a lot of the places are from memory. But um, the characters specifically, uh, not so much. I think there there might be like aspects of my thinking that are in characters. For example, um. Like the way the the way that um, Tato asked questions about God, those questions were questions that I had when I was a child that I didn't get any answers to. So it'd be stuff like that, but um, most of it isn't biographical. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, the reason I ask that question is I'm always interested to find out if fiction if people write from about themselves in some how they how they would imagine their life would have turned out as to how it actually has turned out. Um, yeah, I think that was Mamocheti. That was kind of that was a little bit of what informed my writing of her, like you know, me imagining how my life would have been if I had to drop out in first year to have a child. And you know, it might not it might not have been the worst thing ever. I might have still been able to get my degree, but it definitely would have been harder. And I definitely think that it may have been hard for me to watch other people my age get to travel and get to live overseas and get to go to Afropunk and get to have all these like young experiences that I would be less able to have because of having this child. And um, I think that like, I was also quite scared of getting, of having an unplanned pregnancy and I'm, I'm lucky enough that I've, I haven't experienced one, but there was that elements that I was, I was writing into her character. Hmm. I think everyone's afraid of an unplanned pregnancy. I'm in my thirties and I still think an unplanned pregnancy would be horrible. <laughs> I say this with love. Yeah. I say that I say this with love. It still shocks me that people get pregnant at this age. I'm like, it still shocks me. It still shocks me. I think, I think, I think, I think a lot of black children, we've been in great. You shall not get pregnant it will ruin your whole life. And I think that sort of conversation just sort of, um, just sort of echoes the older we get. I don't think we ever recover from that, from that fear, from that fear. What sort of, which I was curious about, have you ever met any of these charismatic pastors? 
That's it. So that's an interesting question. I'm, I kind of have. So look, your your pastor Bushiri types. No, I haven't been. I haven't met those types of charismatic pastors in, in person, but I have met very energetic pastors. I have I have met pastors who deploy some of the methods that um, Pastor Mkize and Pastor um, and, and Solomon later on use. And I actually ended up, I mean, I wanted to um, go to a charismatic church as part of my research for this book, but then COVID happened. So, you know, that wasn't possible anymore. So I had to kind of resort to YouTube videos, um, watching the way that these guys speak. Um, so I haven't met them personally, but I think that um, just reading stories in the news about the things that they would do to their congregations and the things that they would say um, just really inspired me to to start writing about this because uh, I think that what they do is is really can be really horrific. Uh, they're frauds. Uh, they're scam artists. That's what I call them personally. Uh, they're scam yeah. artists. They abuse. Uh, my aunt is a member of one of those churches. They abuse people who truly believe in ways that the indoctrination, um, the language, the emotiveness of it all. Yeah, uh, I've always said that they are fraudsters and that is just how I've left it. And, and, you, and in a society as unequal as us, where there's significant um, large percentage of the populations in poverty, these churches tend to thrive. We're not, we're not, what's, they're thriving in South Africa is nothing special. It's quite common in specifically our social demographics ensure that churches, prosperity churches would always carry with charismatic leaders who are doing so-called miracles will always thrive. It's just one of those things. Um, I think it's just one of those things. It's unfortunate uh, COVID came in there. You actually should visit one of them. Literally, you'll be traumas. You'll be traumatized. I think it would also be, um, how you've written it is a lot lighter than how it actually is in real life. That's what I'm going to say mm-hmm. about these charismatic churches and these charismatic churches and also how they, how they've, how they abuse their power dynamics. Um, are, you said that you attended church as um, a child. Do you still go? Uh, I don't go to church anymore. I'm, I'm not really a believer um, so I, I attended different churches. There was St. Mary's, with the, which was um, an Anglican church, and that was very slow and slow paced. But there were some more energetic churches that I that I attended. Um, so I think um, I don't know if I should say, but like Rivers Church is probably the closest to a charismatic church that I've been to. But even that operates a bit differently. And I've also been to Rima, so I've been to a number of different churches and seen how they operate. So I was able to draw on those experiences with those churches to kind of um, build Solomon. But I think that my focus, you know, because I, I didn't have the opportunity to go into a charismatic church, my focus then became on building on, on building Solomon rather than the church, if that makes sense. So I decided to, so I wanted to focus more on how Solomon's mind, mindset changes and how he actually employs um these cult-like tactics, which a lot of these churches do, uh, for example, you know, being very restrictive of the type of people, of the type of things that people in the church are allowed to do. You know, if something doesn't work, blaming it on the person's lack of faith, rather than the fact that maybe it just doesn't work for that person for whatever reason. You know, those kinds of things. 
Um, so, so yeah, I actually ended up watching quite a number of, of like cult documentaries just to try and get into the thinking of, of Solomon. And I wanted to focus more on that. No, I think you did a very, very good job. I liked how you, I think you told this, like I said, I liked the realism in the, in the, in the, in the book in terms of how you told the story of Solomon, not getting what he needed at from a trick being seen as a disappointment, his actual backstory. I almost felt sorry for him until you're abusing children. <laughs> you're abusing children for your own needs. But I think that's, I think, one of the things I enjoyed was that you told the story of Solomon and how he got to be the person he is. And yeah, that was an important, um, sorry, that was an important thing for me because um, I thought that if the story just kind of started, if, the, if your first introduction to Solomon is when he sees Toto using her powers, then I felt that he would be, you know, a very flat kind of villain. But I wanted to develop him into a meteor character. Like I wanted to show where this guy comes from and how he gets to the point that he gets to, rather than just having him being this almost cartoonish villain. Mm. Mm, that's okay. Yeah, I think that's, I think I, I like that there was a whole backstory. And I think, I think, I think where we're going towards, I think when I think about, so some of the trends, there is a need, people do want to understand, people actually do want to understand how the bad guy became evil. They really do mm-hmm. want the backs- They really do want the backstory. Was it intentional that your protagonist in this book was Tato, little black girl who was just about perfect? So it it was, I think that um, it's actually funny because when I first thought of the story, I'd kind of had the idea of having Tato's um, story being told through everyone else's eyes and then only having her really speaking at the end. But I wanted to kind of show that this is a little girl with agency. And also she has a very specific way of viewing the world. And, you know, when you say she's almost perfect, it's it's hard for me to write a, a child character who isn't, who's like a bad person, right? Because children, I mean, I get, you know, there are like obviously naughty children out there, but children are more products of their environment. You don't really get children who are like inherently bad people. So I wanted to um, to showcase um, Tato's innocence and her, and how that innocence kind, and how she kind of loses that innocence by the end of the book and her curiosity and her need to help people and how that, need to help people ends up being um, sort of exploited by by Solomon and also and also by her mother to a certain extent. Um, so for me, I wanted to kind of use Tato as like a journey of this person who's this very naive person who starts to learn things about the world at at a very young age and is forced to to grow up to basically grow up because of this huge burden that's that's on her shoulders. Mm, yeah, I, I think I, I agree with your statement in terms of children. I children are, are definitely products products of the environment. No child wakes up in the world and decides to and decides to just be evil or anything like that. I think that I think we're all met. I think the structure of South Africa, and that's why I like the fact that it was it was it was centered around here, Joburg. The struggles of South Africa sometimes force you the socioeconomic needs to 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 do things that are contrarian to what you would consider good behavior and mm-hmm. and it's i think it's just one of those things um 
that that just happens. And it's one of the things I sometimes reconcile with, struggle to reconcile with in our country in that you, in some hand, you understand something, someone doing something wrong, but then on the other hand, you're like, desperation, circumstance, all recipes, all recipes, yeah. all recipes to a very, 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 very bad, very, 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 very bad ending. Um, and I like the fact that she was a girl and her innocent curiosity, I think what you describe her in the book as, as being a pleasant child, as if she knew she had to validate herself herself somehow in her mother's eyes. And I think that also mm-hmm. played a part in some of the choices that were made. You have a child who's unplanned, by and large is seeming to be easy to raise. And it's, I think it's one of those, I think it's one of those situations where you're, you're having, you're, you're sort of validating. Well, you didn't, in terms of validating um, what you're trying to say, yeah, um, val- yeah. validating your existence, validating um, just a, a, a whole host of things. And I think that's also quite, quite, quite challenging. In the book, um, you wrote a lot about uh, things in the 1980s in Soweto. How did you yeah. find across there? You're, uh, yeah, how did you find across those things? You're a young one. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I um, ended up interviewing people who had lived in Soweto in the 80s. Um, one of the main people I used was my mom because that's where she grew up. She also introduced me to some of like her former her former neighbors, like people she grew up with, and I was able to talk to them about life in Soweto. But I also had to rely on some historical archives, um, which is difficult because the archives in this country are not good. It's very difficult to find um, a lot of information that should be quite basic. For example, like, um, you know, the part where Janelle says, and if mom, if mama asked me where I am, tell her I've gone to see this movie. And then I remembered, oh my God, there were movies that were banned during apartheid. So now I was trying to figure out which movies were banned and just finding that out was, was difficult. Um, but, but yeah, it was, that's kind of where I had to put my research hat on and, um, and conduct and conduct research on what it was like to live there and and try to make it feel as real as possible and i've been really happy that um older people who've read my book have said that it was quite true to to what they experienced mm, no i yeah, yeah that was, that's what i was asking to myself i was thinking i was looking at your age and i was looking at some of the details like Mm, how would you know this? I actually assumed you would either get it from the parental units, the parental units in terms of how the detail, just the level of detail that you can actually, you can picture it. You can actually picture it. You can actually picture the scenes with Udeneo and everything else. You can, you can actually, you can see it. You can actually see it. It's, it's sort of like when you go back and forth in time, that's how I can explain it. That's how I felt when I was reading it. Um, in terms of in terms of how the book has been going, how have you found uh, since it's been released? How has the feedback been? So the feedback has been has been overall um, quite positive. Um, people have really enjoyed the book. There's a lot of people who've told me that they appreciate how um, it's not a difficult book to read. Um, like the like they like the flow, and I've had a couple of people tell me that they literally read it in like one or two days. Um, 
the only minor, the only like complaints I've really had about it is that um, uh, Uncle Mulifi is as a favorite among many people, and there were some people who felt I should have given him um, more space, especially to explore his relationship with the love of his life. So that's only that's the only real complaint I had. But um, everyone else has really enjoyed the writing. Um, the sales have been, you know, we've been pleasantly surprised to see that the sales have been quite decent. So um, it's been, it's, it's definitely shown me that there are people out there who appreciate my writing and it's a great motivation for me to write more. Mm. Mm. No, I agree. Any chance of you turning this into a book? I mean, to a movie mm-hmm. or series or series, movie or series, movie or series. That's what, what I was thinking. I mean, look, yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, um, it's... It's actually a bit of a complicated question because obviously it'll depend on whether or not any um, TV or movie houses approach me for the rights. But um, it's kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it could be really cool to see the story being translated onto screen. On the other hand, you know, sometimes producers can mess it up. Like I've, uh, you know, I've um, watched more than... A, quite a lot of movie or TV adaptations of books that just weren't as good. So there's a part of me that kind of wants to be a bit precious about my work and be like, I don't want this to be messed up. But um, if given the opportunity, I think I would be, I would be interested in, in getting it turned into a TV show or or a movie. No, the reason why I ask because I think I'm, I'd be interested in it. Um, I love movie adaptions sometimes. It depends on which one. It's, it's very rare that the ad- adaptation, I should say, is better than the book. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can rare. only think of, of yeah, I can only think of one book movie adaptation that's better than the book, and that was Devil Wears Prada. Literally, every other book, the adaptation has either been um, has, has either been like fair, so like Gone Girl's adaptation was quite good, um, or it's that been one. yeah. I also thought Rosie. Rosie killed that role. <laughs> killed that role. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. <laughs> Rosie was the. I honestly feel that Rosie just. Uh, she brought that book to life. I I enjoyed Girl, uh, uh, Gone Girl, and I also. Um, I actually never read the book on the Devil Wears Prada. Let me be honest. I never read. I read Gone Girl, but I never read uh, no. the Devil Wears Prada. The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, no, it's not worth it. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. <laughs> like, wow. Shame, shame, Betuna, shame, Betuna. No, I usually, if I'm, if it's not a mainstream book, I'd read it, I'd usually read the book first. If I knew it's an adaptation, I usually try to read the book first because that's what I did with Gone Girl. I read the book first, then watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. For me, like, I used to do the same, but sometimes I'm like, because uh, on the one hand, you know, watching the book, the problem with watching the movie first is that, now look, the movie characters are the people you picture when you read the book. But then the problem with the reading the book first is that the movie is never as good. So, you know, it's it's yeah, you have to you have to balance. But but I also generally prefer to read to read books before I watch the movie. Mm. All right. I'm glad you've been enjoying. I'm trying not to give away the story too much because I think <laughs> I think people should actually go buy the book. Um uh, mm-hmm. I will say exclusive books does a 36 hour turnaround on this book. They were, it really was 36. I ordered on Sunday evening. I had a Tuesday morning. So they very, very good oh, on that. Yeah, that is very good on that's that. Good. 
So um, what's next for you besides book promotion, um, researching, fact-checking, coming for people's Twitter edges? <laughs> so um, I kind of told myself that um, I would take the next book slow because uh, writing this book was like really tiring and it took a lot out of me and it took a lot of energy and there were times when it was very frustrating. So I decided, let me just chill out a bit on the next one. So I do want to write another book. Like I do see myself writing more books, but um, all, I, all I can say to people is that the next one will come when it comes because I'm, I'm not trying to rush myself. No, I agree. I agree. Channel George Martin. <laughs> It will come. Yeah. I'm not going to be as bad as as that because he's been writing for 10 years. So there'll be another book within the next 10 years. (laughs) Shame. (laughs) Guys, I actually feel for George. I actually feel for George. I've decided in my heart I'm going to buy and read his completion because I think he's had time now. He's, you know, he's he's had time. You know, writing's a lot of work, guys. Writing's a lot of work. No, it is. But um, yeah, I, I've got getting. I'm becoming impatient. I mean, I read an article the other day about how he regretted that the series surpassed the book, and I was like, "But you had time to make sure that this wouldn't happen." So, I'm also I'm very impatient with George. But when the winds of winter comes out, I probably I'll, I might actually just read it, just so in the hopes of getting a decent ending to that series. Yes. No, it's because once they didn't have George, I always say once they didn't have George, they lost the plot. He was, yeah. so he needs to, he needs to finish. He needs to finish. He needs to finish. So I'm, I've, yeah. I've committed myself emotionally for the George project. I've yeah, he needs to give that series a dignified ending that it deserves because the producers just absolutely tarnished it. They just, mm. it was terrible what they did. Mm. Mm. All right, then. I think I think we've come towards the end of our chat. I've actually enjoyed this chat. It's actually been, you, prob- you, you did provide a lot of insight and the book is so different to how you are on Twitter. So different. <laughs> Fiction is, I just have to say that. No, so like when I was reading it, I was like, is this the same person? Yeah, I mean, my fiction writing and my non-fiction writing are very different. You know, Twitter is just kind of me um, screaming into a void. But with fiction, you know, you have to take your time with it. It's like it's a baby. You have to kind of be very careful with it and work it and rework it. And and also, I just kind of wanted to to really keep the sort of magical tone in the book. So mm-hmm. it is very different from my non-fiction writing. <laughs> Yes, even yeah, your other writing. I've read some of your other stuff, and I was like, oh, it's, that's why I said it was completely different. If someone were to pay me and ask me, is it the same person? I would not be able to tell. I honestly, would. That's how different it actually is. That's how different. Now, that's a good thing. This is to show skills and range. This is a good thing. It's a good comment. It was, it was just something I actually thought I'd brought in line that was actually I found it quite um different to how you normally engage um in in other your other writings and I and I, I think I enjoy that and I think I think for what I always explain to someone is that uh, journalism writing it's range yeah yeah it's just range and range and range is there anything else you want to let the people know um just that the book is available in exclusive books, bargain books, um, and on the Blackbird website. 
please buy my book. I, I would really love for us to get to um, a second rep- a reprint and then a third reprint. And so, yeah, please buy my book. And other than that, um, I think we've covered everything. This was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. All righty, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to stop the recording.